Who are we? And what does our life mean anyway? Those are big philosophical questions. And I can't answer those, so I'm not going to try. But what I can answer, though, or at least what I can give you some semblance of understanding about, is where and how humans came to be. In this particular set of stories, we're going to begin tracing the origin of human civilization, watching the rise of humans from, from the plains and the, and the fields of Africa as they spread out across the world and begin to build cities as we move from early man into the Bronze Age period. We're going to look at the inventive and creative ways in which humans begin to reshape their world and to try to gain mastery over their environment. We're going to look at how we came to be and how these first ideas actually came into circulation. So buckle up and join me as your whispering wizard as I walk you through the exciting tales of history. Cuneiform wasn't easy to write. You try to look at it, you should check it out. Trying to use all those little wedge shapes are pretty phenomenal and time-consuming. This is one of the reasons that eventually the language is just going to die out. There's just too much that has to be learned. Now, of course, using the, the concept of cuneiform doesn't necessarily mean you're speaking Sumerian. There were people who lived in Sumer who spoke, uh, who spoke Akkadian, and they wrote using cuneiform, but they wrote it as Akkadian because Akkadian became the official script. Now, the cuneiform became, if you will, the lingua franca for the world powers of the Bronze Age. We enter into a later period of the Bronze Age. There's no like alphabet exactly the way we know it, or at least for our purposes. The alphabet doesn't come along until a little later, but check it out. It's kind of interesting. Give it a try. See how well you can write. Now, let's stop, take a look here and stop at an island, uh, a little island we haven't visited yet. Now, on the mainland of Greece, there is said to have lived a king who had a beautiful daughter. Her name was Europa. Now, Zeus, the, god, the Greek god of lighting, the cosmic playboy, kind of found himself unable to contain his lustful desires. That's kind of a typical story in Greek mythology. His jealous wife, Hera, also his half-sister, so who? Uh, kept a very suspicious eye on him, so he had to be very coy. And the girl tended the fields, and one day he came to he came to her as a beautiful bull. She immediately reached out to touch him. Uh, touch, when he nudged her to mount his strong back, unsuspecting that it was really the god of you know, lightning and thunder, she jumped on the bull's back against her better judgment. He took off in full gallop and took off into the water. Jumping into the sea, she held onto his back as he traveled at pretty rapid pace across, uh, hopping the islands into a place now known to us as Crete. And there, away from the scrutinous eye of his wife, and I don't know how that happened. She, like, does not be able to see him because of a cloud. Who knows? But one day, uh, there he revealed himself as Zeus, and they began a short torrent affair. How one-sided that is, I can't say. Now, one day she left there, and he left there, but he didn't leave there without a remembrance. He left there, left her pregnant with children. In time, one of those, one of those children, her descendants, would be Minos. And from Minos, the Minoan people are said to have sprung and come to be as a civilization. And this historic group gave us, his man gave his name to this historic group, or at least how we as archaeologists or historians refer to them. His mother gave her name to the continent. I'm sure that was a ride that... Europa probably wished that she hadn't taken in the first place. But 
what actually happened at, in, with the Minoans is a little more complicated than that. Actually, there's not a lot we know about how the Minoans began. We know sometime around 2000 BCE, the Minoans are beginning to take off as a civilization. We're going to watch them rise, and around the 1600s, we'll start to see, really, in some ways, the beginning of the end. But we know the Minoans kind of show up everywhere, and there's definitely, uh, there's definitely contact being made between the Minoans and other locations in the world. Now, if we hop across from the island of Minoa, and we move a little bit, to the south, we're going to come back into Egypt. The last time that we left off in Egypt, things weren't going uh, too great. Uh, the, the, the first intermediate period has happened, and so civilization has had a great shaking. But now, as the Minoan civilization is starting to take off, Egypt is beginning to rise again from this first intermediate period, and it's coming back with a new resolve. The 12th dynasty of Egypt uh, has begun a political transformation. So a character named Amenemhet I, meaning Amen at the forefront, took a draconian control over the country. Ruthless autocrat he was, no doubt, but he did bring order into the chaos. If there's a pharaoh in history that could have had the slogan, Make Egypt Great Again, it would have been Amenemhet. And he was a building machine. Not only did he build all over the place, but he also brought the Nubians back under his thumb, because the Nubians caused a little trouble for Egypt throughout their history. He had something of a scorched earth policy he used with them. So he enslaved those who resisted him, and that definitely kept things under control. He started to build a powerful empire. Now, as he closes in towards the end of his reign, he recognizes that one of the problems that happened in the past was very simple. The problem was that he needed to ensure that he had good, clean succession so that his son, Sennesaret, uh, would be in, was installed as co-pharaoh with him. So that way he could teach the boy the ropes and make sure he was ready when the time came for him to leave. And it worked. When Amenem had passed, Sennesaret became pharaoh, and it was a very smooth and easy transition. He proved to be a pretty good ruler, too. He brought a lot of art and poetry and a lot of new culture to his people. Now, the area of Egypt that really takes off and becomes kind of a powerhouse is the northern delta area. And this is a place where a lot of power will lie, especially during the Middle Kingdom. One of these, one of this, uh, one of the, some of this has to do with technological advancements taking place in the Middle Kingdom, particularly um, better irrigation systems. In the area known, for example, as the Vian Basin, we can see new canals that were dug. Irrigation um, begins to crop up throughout this dynasty. The group of pharaohs that are here ruling are kind of interesting because although they're definitely autocrats, they're not completely opposed to sharing at least some of their power. In fact, it's quite possible that if it happened in history, that the biblical story of Joseph would probably match quite well right here. We do know these pharaohs appointed a lot of like prime ministers, what they called viziers, and the viziers would help them to rule Egypt. Local, local viziers could be very powerful, and it's not necessarily uh, out of the question to think that an Asiatic could come into Egypt and make his way through the culture and actually rise to a position as a local vizier. There's even a canal there that's called Joseph's Canal. There's some question because it's been called Joseph's Canal since time immemorial. Is that some type of a leftover or assemblage of something brought by this man Joseph? There's certainly some question, and historians are going to argue about that forever. Those who believe the Bible is complete hogwash 
are going to dismiss it. Those who believe the Bible is absolute, uh, 100% veritable truth are going to look for evidence even if some of the evidence isn't there. I think we can leave open and say that it's entirely possible that a man named Joseph did exist and that he may have achieved some significant power in the land of Egypt. But we'll leave it at that. This dynasty starts to kind of turn nasty underneath the reign of Sennacherib III. Some things start to go a little bit awry in the way the pharaohs ruled. This is actually right before Joseph would have even arrived in the first place. Um, the pharaoh who takes power, Sennacherib, is uh, he's not necessarily a nice guy. Unlike, unlike Sennacherib I, who's always shown smiling and always considered to be a shepherd of his people, Sennacherib III is a little bit more... Uh, little bit darker. Um, he's always pictured as having kind of a nasty scowl, like he's the kind of guy that you don't want to cross because he might, you know, beat you up or something. So uh, he was brutal, and he's always depicted in his, in his images as being just a kind of unhappy-looking character. When he dies, his son Amenemhet III takes the throne and has a fairly long and, and successful reign, and this probably would have been, again, where Joseph would have lived. But Amenemhat III, in a way, is kind of the beginning of the end for his family. And that brings me to my mad history headline.